following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show. To find out more, contact us and contribute towards a positive future. Good morning. You are listening to Zena Richardson and Scotty Foster, your host today with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM in Canberra. And that great piece was Tree Song by Andy and George. Well, we have one of our favourite guests back in studio with us today, uh, Tim Hollow. Tim is the Executive Director of the Green Institute. He's a musician, environmentalist and a community activist. He was also the Communications Director for the Greens leader, Christine Milne, and a board member and campaigner at Greenpeace Australia. Australia Pacific. He is the founder of Green Music Australia and boy can he play, try and catch a concert when you see his name up there. And he has recorded seven albums and toured globally with four play string quartet. Living in Canberra with his partner and two kids, Tim established the city's flourishing Buy Nothing groups. And I know I'm a great user of the Buy Nothing groups. They've been fantastic, especially during COVID. He also set up a little library, spearheaded a campaign to keep the city free of billboard advertising. And most recently, I'm sure you've seen his name there, he ran for the federal election with the Greens. So welcome back into the studio, Tim. Welcome to the show again. Thanks for having me, Zena. Always a pleasure to chat. Yeah, it's wonderful. So I was actually looking up the career path of someone quite well known uh, last night. And I'm just going to read a list of some things that they experienced. And you can tell me if you can guess who it might be. <laughs> so 1832, this person lost their job, was defeated for the state legislature. 1833, they failed in their business. 1835, their sweetheart died. 1836, they had a nervous breakdown. 1838, they were defeated for Speaker. 1843, they were defeated for nomination for Congress. 1848, they lost renomination. 1849, they were rejected for Land Officer. 1854, they were defeated for US Senate. 1856, they were defeated for nomination for Vice President. And 1858, they were again defeated for the US Senate. And then in 1860, they were elected President, President of the United Abraham States. Lincoln. Absolutely. Yeah. So I read that out because I was thinking that, you know, you, Tim, you've had a couple of cracks at this thing and you keep coming back. So I, thought, I want to tell you, don't give up. Maybe right? one don't day I'll be up. President of the USA. <laughs> well, maybe not quite. But I'd like to I'd like to see you in a in a you know change maker role there, um, that you could be you know representing us here in Australia as well, or representing Canberra at least. <laughs> that's kind of you. Um, that's kind of you. I I don't know whether I will run again. I've said to various people, um, you know, it's it's been a tremendous experience and you know an incredible joy as well as of course everything else that goes that goes with it to to run for politics. Um, I don't know if I'll do it again, but um, but famous last words. Famous last, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's why I'm kind of putting it in 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 rather vague terms. Who knows? Who knows what the future will hold? And you know, potentially too, if we can get some of the people to pay attention to what you're saying in your most recent book, which we're going to be talking mm. about in the interview today, I think we can get some of those voices um, into representing us would be so important because yeah. it sounds like even with a recent election, we're not we're not being heard. We just mm. listened to a little bit of news before the show that was giving an example of what we're struggling with, which mm. is you know just trying to adopt a climate policy that's mild is still causing conflict, and yeah. it's a real struggle. Absolutely, it was yeah. We'll we'll go and talk about the book but yeah as I write in it and it comes out this week I'm I'm really quite skeptical about the capacity of our existing political system to solve 
any of the serious problems that we face, mm -hmm. I still absolutely believe that it's vital that we engage with it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was a very interesting process for me to spend most of 2021 writing this book, which is all about how our political system isn't working, and then dive headfirst <laughs> into an election campaign <laughs> trying to be part of it. Um, so, yeah, there's this, you know, I mean, one of the things I'm saying in this, in this idea about an ecological way of viewing the world is that we need to embrace contradiction, actually. We need to embrace that um, that constructive tension in there. So what do you think are the, the root causes of this inability to address any of these problems mm. in, our, in our political system? I mean, the short answer, the one-word answer is power. Um, but there's a lot of complexity, of course, to that. Um, what I what I believe is that over the course of a number of millennia, this system has developed, which is based on a culture which I refer to as anti-ecological culture. So, ecology is is the wondrous, um, you know, the wondrous complex adaptive system of the natural world, which is all about interdependent diversity and constant change. That's what nature does. Um, it is truly interdependent where every part has an impact on every other part and part of the of understanding that interdependence is that it is enormously diverse um, and that through this, this interdependent diversity, it's constantly changing in various ways. Well, a system is developed through people seeking to dominate others and seeing themselves as separate from others and seeing their group as separate from other groups. It, it develops this kind of this us and them um, view of the world um, contrary to the, the we, they sort of deep interdependence that indigenous cultures have, and which, which is based on an understanding of ecology. Um, and this system very slowly kind of in fits and starts developed over thousands and thousands of years. And there's been a whole lot of amazing research into how that happened. Um, and it's only over the last two centuries, really, that it's come to be so incredibly dominant over the whole globe um, through the rise of imperialism and capitalism. Um, it's come to dominate. And it's through that domination, that system of domination, that our political and economic systems have developed, um, that we have a political system which is based on this adversarialism. You know, our entire, you know, we just heard, as you said, Zena, um, you know, Peter Dutton, the new opposition leader, um, just opposing for the sake of opposing. That's what our politics tries to do. And, and in that context, cooperation is a sign of weakness. And, you know, so, so this whole system is based on, on domination and separation. And we need to really reclaim all of these other parts of our lives which have always existed and have always continued to exist where we believe fundamentally in co cooperation we teach children to share and then we build an economic system where they're not allowed to share um, we teach children to cooperate and then and then we build a political system where they're not allowed to cooperate <laughs> yeah we need to we need to reclaim that do you think that any part of this is really intentional do you think this has been structured deliberately this way or mm. is it sort of by accident? I think it's pretty much by accident. Um, yeah, the, it, I mean, what happens is that I quote in the book the wonderful Tyson Yunker Porter. I, I think you've both come across his amazing book, Sand Talk, How Indigenous Thinking Can Save the World. Um, 
the point that he makes so clearly in there that's made by so many other um, Indigenous um, political <laughs> thinkers um, around the world, Robin Wall Kimmerer in America, Mary Graham in Queensland, um, is that we have to understand that these temptations exist in all of us. Everyone has both. We have the will to dominate, but we also have the will to cooperate. And so Indigenous systems of governance were built very, very much on the view of suppressing the will to dominate, very carefully suppressing that. Um, and our system was slowly built around reversing that. So, yeah, I, th I mean, I, there's always bad actors. You know, that's the thing. There's always people who are really quite sociopathic. The problem is when they actually get control and build a system around it and we all take part in it because it's in all of us. Like it, it genuinely is. No, None of us can say we don't have some of that will in us. Um, so I think, yeah, look, there's intentional impulses along the way from bad actors, but most of us most of the time continue the system because it's just – it's. It's like the fish doesn't see the water that they're swimming in. Yeah, and I guess the other side of that is that something like 97% of us pretty much all of the time are the most incredibly cooperative yeah. species on Earth. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's astonishing the way, you know, you can, you can walk down the street and you can be in a large crowd and and people will part and make way for each other and you know it's the, it's that obvious kind of thing it it works it works all the time and when you build a system like you mentioned the by nothing groups already um, when you create the space for people to behave in that way we love it we absolutely love it we flourish and we thrive and it and it grows really well um until something in the power system blocks it <laughs> and tells you to stop. Well, there's like the mutual aid groups that sprung yeah. up during COVID, right? You touched on that in your book as well. And just mm. how willing everybody was to look out for the people who were mm. more vulnerable in the community, how willing they were to go that extra mile, to get, pick up that extra roll of toilet paper or help someone with their chores or yep. people who couldn't get out and, and get resources. You know, their community came together to support them or maybe identified people in their community they didn't even know existed right. prior to COVID and recognised they were vulnerable and needed support. Right, you know, absolutely. That was incredible. Imagine if that was on a global scale yep. if we did that in every community in every country what that yep. would look like and it does all the time and and watch what happened in COVID in the first wave of COVID mutual aid went gangbusters mm -hmm. and then as it went on the systems of power worked out how to co-opt that mm -hmm. and how to dominate it and you had you know governments mm -hmm. taking um, armed police into communities to stop mm -hmm. them from sharing and you had capitalism mm -hmm. coming in and providing you know mm -hmm. delivery to to make the, the community cooperation unnecessary. Um, Which we've seen in China doesn't work because we have people starving to death right. in high rises during the show, still yeah. during the Shanghai still, lockdown. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and and yeah. What what I what I fundamentally believe is that this this incredible desire for mutual aid is in all of us, and it tends to flourish at times of emergency. Um, and what we're and at the same time, what happens in times of emergency is those in power clamp down even harder. Um, well, we're in a time of emergency now for the rest of our lives. I think probably all of your listeners get that really clearly. We're going to be in rolling crises for the rest of our lives. 
what we need to work out is how we can make sure that the that the desire for mutual aid that springs up in every community when this stuff happens actually can can take over and build those new systems based on it so that power and the powerful don't stamp on on those shoots as they grow what I thought was quite interesting too that when we've had times of disaster in communities, significant disaster, um, who steps up to help first? Mm. And there was a quite a famous incident, I think it was in 1974, when there was a big earthquake in Los Angeles and the freeway collapsed. Mm. And it was in a part of town that um, was a bit poorer, a bit more working class. And there were a lot of sort of uh, wealthy people commuted on that highway to go into work in mm. high rises. And uh, <coughs> most of the people impacted in that crash were wealthier, privileged people, you know, in nice mm. cars. And the first people to jump up and help them were the street people, yep. the poor, the you know the, the people that were struggling in um, you know low income neighbourhoods, and they saved so many lives. And that was yeah. you know brought to attention after that, but then it was quickly buried, mm-hmm. and the division was you know returning again so quickly yep. between the classes. And yep. you know you saw human nature trump mm. all of the um, negative stories and narratives that we've fed by the media about classism, mm. right? Absolutely. Rebecca Solnit um, details a whole lot of those kinds of stories in her incredible book, Hope in the Dark. Mm. Um, the One of the big examples she gives is Hurricane Katrina, mm. um, where the narrative that we were sold by mm. the media was that in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, everybody was looting, there were people who were, who were killing and raping each other and all of that kind of thing, whereas the clear reality on the ground was that people were looking after each other um, to an extraordinary extent. And yes, they were breaking into grocery stores to get food, but that wasn't looting. That was because they had no other access and, to and food. And pharmaceuticals. There was a doctor who actually broke into a pharmacy and they tried to say that he was a looter. He says, no, right. I'm a doctor getting no, medicine I'm so I can treat medicines. the injured people. Yeah. yeah, and the looters were George W. Bush and his friends yeah. who were going in there and absolutely destroying everything and, and ripping the wealth out of, of that community um, for their own benefit. Um, they were the looters. Well, the buses that were sitting just on the perimeter there that they never went in to get the people. I mean, very, very bizarre things. Mm. There's no rational explanation other than it's a deliberate decision. Mm. Well, I mean, if you look at that, New Orleans Mm. was the the economic hub of the black community in the United States. And that's happened before with Mm. the... uh, Oh, there was another town where they basically... The white fellas did a riot and... Killed the whole lot. Um, um, in Mississippi. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Can't remember the name of the town. Was it Charleston or? No. Mm-hmm. Maybe oh, there's probably a few. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's, it's not, the, not mm-hmm. the first time no. that that's happened. Yeah. yeah. And again, you know, this is this is othering. Yes, it's, it's exactly. dividing. Exactly. What do you think the role of dividing and othering is in our society? Yeah. No. Look, it's it's central. It's central to the whole history of how this how this system developed. Um, you know, we know from indigenous culture, we know from anthropology, um, the work of the amazing David Graeber, the late great David Graeber and others. Um, you know, there's always been, of course, a tendency in humanity as well to look at somebody different and be slightly sceptical. Um, but almost every society throughout human history has understood that difference is just part of the way things are. And we might need to be careful of that difference. We might need to be conscious of that difference. And we do need to be conscious of that difference. Um, But it's not an us and them. It's not this is completely different. Um, One of my other favourite writers in in, in 
who I talk about in the book, Timothy Morton, an ecological philosopher, talks about the need in ecology to think differently about difference, which I just love that that encapsulation of, and that that I think is one of the most important things that we that we need to think about. That you know that a snail and a whale are different, of course, that they're, they're incredibly different, <laughs> but they're also incredibly alike. And they're part of the same family of beings on this planet. And they're utterly interrelated in all sorts of ways. So they're not black and white. They're different, but they're interdependent and interrelated. Um, And through that, we get this idea that um, in ecology, in ecological thinking and in ecological politics, we should never try to erase difference. This is one of the things that I think is really important that, that differentiates this, this kind of political idea, particularly from, for instance, some forms of state socialism and some forms of old left thinking that we can somehow erase difference, that we can make everybody alike. Well, we don't want to make everybody. How bloody boring would that be if everybody was well, the same? Well, that would be ecological collapse as It would well, be, right? yeah. It would be a grey goo. It would be nothing. How fragile. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, monocultures are incredibly fragile. What, we desperately need difference. We, our entire system is based on difference, but it needs to be difference which we appreciate, which we love. It's a, it's a coexistence of diversity. Um, so, yeah, that's this delicate balance here that, you know, othering... As we as we think of it now, is deeply, deeply, deeply problematic, and it's the heart of, you know, patriarchy and racism mm-hmm. and sexism and 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 queerphobia mm-hmm. and all of these things. We need to flip that, and instead of erasing that difference, we need to celebrate it. Well, we see that. I guess the the greatest painting of that difference would be the United States of America, because every six months it seems to be there's a new divisive movement of right. some kind, and the most recent would be Roe versus Wade. Right. And I was actually listening to a young journalist interviewing um, uh, a conservative old gentleman a couple of days ago, and mm-hmm. he was trying to f- make the point that you know even though he was pro-abortion and this other gentleman was against abortion under any circumstances, and then there was you know he had different views, but he said we're still coming together to talk about the things that matter collectively. Mm. for humanity we can Mm. like each other we can talk to each other we can share ideas even if we have very differing views on things Mm. we feel very strongly about and we can still come together and and talk about the collective good and that seems to be being erased you don't see that in politics of course Mm. you know very rarely do you Mm. see that in politics yeah Mm. absolutely and the challenge is how to do that well Mm. i think and that's what i talk about a lot in the book about the need to learn Mm. to disagree better because there's this all there's also this tendency in in you know there's this horrible horrible idea of the sensible center i think which is just so to me it's so infuriatingly wrong this idea that if you've got two opposing views then something in the middle is going to be the right one um well you know the halfway between the laws of physics and 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 chemistry and the desires of the fossil fuel corporations is not the right answer <laughs> you know it's wrong we need to have these conversations and we need to learn to disagree better and understand that disagreement is is useful if we do it well the problem is that some people don't want to learn to do that and that you know that brings us back in this idea of difference to you know, Karl Popper talked about how you know post you know post fascism as a as a German philosopher, the importance that in a in a tolerant society, 
there's this slight contradiction that you cannot tolerate intolerance. If you tolerate intolerance, you no longer have a tolerant society. Mm-hmm. So that's what it makes me think about in, in, in the question of Roe v. Wade and so many of these other things is that it's difficult to find agreement with somebody who wants to suppress your mm-hmm. basic human rights. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we must celebrate all diversity except the refusal to celebrate diversity, you know? So I celebrate the diversity of views, the diversity of genders, the diversity of sexualities, all of this kind of thing. I don't extend that to celebrating somebody else's view that my trans kid is less human than somebody else's kid, you know? Well, this is the argument That's bullshit. with the church and the schools and we've seen this, yep. the same thing, right? It's- yep. You can't, you can't accept that. In a world, in a system which celebrates diversity, you can't accept the views of those who refuse to accept that diversity. So there is a tension there. Um, and, yeah, there's, there's this desire that a lot of people are expressing for a better politics and a better way of doing things. And I think we see the rise of the teal movement as part of that. And I think there's part of that teal movement who are there's some of them who are fantastic and coming in with really, really good will and good intention and beautiful values. And there's some who just have this quite naive idea that, well, if we can just all agree and if we can compromise, then it'll all be okay. And yeah, it's not. That would only work <laughs> if everybody had the same mindset, right? Yeah. 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 Mm. So what are the... What are the methods of conflict resolution that you've seen working really well around the globe? Because I'm sure you've had a look at them. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot that I detail in my book. I mean, so, I mean, some of it comes from my own very personal experience of, of being in, in the Greens and the Green Movement, where for, for many, many years the movement and the peace movement have been based around consensus decision-making. So we work on that really hard, the idea being that um, – a majority rules approach um, based on an adversarial decision-making system is not very good, actually. It's not a very good way of making decisions. Um, It tends to mean that those with the loudest voices tend to win, whether they have the best opinion or not, and you drive people away from it because you you reject them, you piss them off. Um, Whereas a consensus approach is about everybody feeling safe to put their views on the table, feeling listened to, and understanding that they are their views and they're important and everybody else's views are also important. And we, what we need to do through a consensus decision-making process is find a creative path through. So it's quite different, actually, from a political compromise process. Sometimes it is a compromise. Sometimes it's I want A, you want C, and B is halfway between, and that works. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it might be something completely different. I want to have pizzas, you want to have kebabs, and we both agree to go to an Indonesian instead. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be something completely different. Um, And consensus works by finding out what people want, where they're coming from, and creatively developing a solution that everybody can agree to. And there's so many examples of this going on all over the world. Um, Scotty, you and I have talked a lot over over the years about the extraordinary um, Kurdish um, non-state um, Rojava, um, the, yeah, the autonomous 
um, autonomous administration, administration of northern eastern exactly. Syria. Yeah. <laughs> well, did you let Tim know we had Salah Muslim on the line calling oh, directly wow. from Kurdistan? Amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, a couple months ago. Three in he the was, morning yeah, for three him. Three in the morning Oh, wow. He had a very thick accent. <laughs> <laughs> but, but great conversation. It yeah. Was, yeah. I mean, I think what they're doing over there is absolutely extraordinary because, you, you, you know, you have to think of it in the context of this is a people who have been oppressed for, you know, mm-hmm. hundreds if not thousands of years by dominant cultures in that area. They're currently living within, you know, this post-World War, you know, um, British kind of separation, separation of, of these states where they didn't get one <laughs> um, and, and they got kind of plonked in the middle and they'd been fighting this Maoist revolutionary struggle for years and years and years and failing. And then, yeah, Abdullah Öcalan... Um, came across the work of Murray Bookchin, the, the anarchist <laughs> philosopher, and said, well, instead of fighting for our state, how about we just build our own nation from the grassroots up? And they started to do it, and they do it on the basis of consensus decision-making at a local level, um, you know, getting delegates from each local group to come together in the coordinating councils, and they have a, a, th- a three-layer system where the top layer... The, across the whole area is actually the least powerful, the least important. Mm-hmm. It's purely about kind of supporting coordination um, between the the grassroots organisations of of a hundred or so people in each local community who who make all the decisions, who uh, about you know fixing the potholes and and the water distribution and the food and the school curricula and all of that kind of stuff. It's absolutely incredibly inspiring what's going on there. Well, I think, Scotty, you we, could we, talk we about the fact have, that they brought... We don't have time for any of that, though. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they even included women in the decision-making, which was um, first time, I think, in yeah, a Muslim culture that yeah. women were placed in prominent decision-making yep. positions. Yeah, mm. and I understand that's been one of the most controversial parts <laughs> of it, um, is breaking down those um, those very deep cultural and religious gender mm-hmm. barriers. Um. And, you know, same kind of thing going on with the buy-nothing groups, same kind of thing going on with mutual aid um, rising, in, you know, in the pandemic and in fires and that kind of thing. It's it's grassroots up. It's people coming together. And, and, and in those systems, the ones that work are where the decisions stay with the members mm-hmm. always. Mm-hmm. And the members understand that the decisions stay with them, but that doesn't mean that they always get their own way. It means that they know their voice is actually heard and respected within it, but they might not get the the, the, the thing that they wanted, but they feel respected and and treated as as worthy within it. Um, and yeah, this is the yeah like like you jokingly say, we don't have time. Well, we don't have time not to do it. We genuinely don't have time not to do it. This is the argument I've been having with folks in the climate movement for oh 15 years now. We've been doing the same thing in the climate movement for decades and we're failing. Absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're making incremental progress and hip, hip, hooray this week we made some really, really crucial incremental progress. But winning slowly in the face of the climate crisis is the same as failing. Um. You know, 43% will surely kill millions of people and the Great Barrier Reef and countless species. So we don't have time not to do it differently. Mm. 
I guess I can't remember who said it, but someone said uh, we're in danger of becoming extinct because we couldn't afford to save ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, and we, we've had Walter Yanner on the show, who you're familiar yep. with. Um, yep. And Walter said, look, we can really fix things within about two years. We can roll things back that quickly yeah. if we adopted and implemented yep. some of the procedures and suggestions. Mm. And that they're not even extremely radical ones, yep. you know, like people that resist the, you know, their lifestyle being changed mm. and things like that. We're not talking about that you can't fly anywhere, you can't drive anywhere. We're talking mm. about, you know, um, rejuvenating the soil carbon yep. sponge and changing the way we use the land, mm. and, you know, things like that, that you think, wow, if we could start reversing things to that degree within a two-year period, mm. why aren't we doing it? Mm. You know, why aren't we doing it? Because the systems of power mm-hmm. hold the old way in place. That's mm. what they're there for. Mm. That's what they're there for. Um, but they're collapsing. This is, this is, I think, one of the most exciting things about the space that we're in. Um, over the last 15, 20 years or so, I think my view is that the – the systems of economic and political power have started to lose their sway very, very, very much. Um, you know, I've talked, I think, on this program before about um, the the extraordinary um, Italian philosopher Antonio Gramsci, who the, 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 his most famous line is, the old world is dying and the new is struggling to be born and, and here be monsters. This is the most dangerous but also the most opportune moment. Um, and his philosophy is based on the idea that power is held both by institutional power, so the obvious institutions mm-hmm. like you know parliaments and large corporations and police and judicial systems, mm-hmm. but also by common sense, mm-hmm. by cultural power, and and that's incredibly important because you know these these systems of coercive power don't use force against most people most of the time. Most of the time, we consent to their power over us. Um, because it's the way things are done, because we just believe that it's the right thing to do, because we're brought up believing that it's the right thing to do. Um, And when that cultural common sense starts to wane, there's an extraordinary moment of opportunity to change the institutions of power quite drastically. Um, And I think what we're seeing at the moment is that both the political common sense and the economics common sense are collapsing. Um, You know, post the the global financial crisis, there's an immense scepticism of capitalism. There's actually majority view. Polls around the world have shown that there is now a majority view that capitalism causes more harm than good. In Australia, there is a majority view that capitalism causes more harm than good. Nobody in you know, in the mainstream papers or, you know, or the ABC or in politics would acknowledge that that is the case. But most of us believe capitalism causes more harm than good. And we see the same with our democratic systems. In the early 2000s, our confidence in our democratic systems was way up in the 80s. Most, the vast majority of us believed that our democratic systems were pretty robust, pretty solid. Even through the Howard era, most of us believed that our systems were pretty solid. Through the mid-2000s and through to now, that confidence has absolutely crashed through the floor to the point where now 40% or fewer of us actually believe that our democratic systems are capable of solving the problems that we face and are actually doing a good thing. So people don't believe that the state, 
The, the main role of the state, the reason we consent to the power of the state is because it tells us it will keep us safe. It's your social contract. <laughs> yep, it's the social contract. The state tells us, you submit to us and we will keep you safe. Well, hello, bushfires, <laughs> floods, <laughs> wars... And on the it sta- goes, yeah. The state is... Uh, pandemic. Mm-hmm. The state is not keeping us safe, and none of us believe anymore that the state is keeping us safe. Mm-hmm. The same with the economic social contract. Mm-hmm. The, the capitalism tells us mm-hmm. we should submit to the indignities mm-hmm. that it forces upon us because it means that everyone will keep getting more prosperous over mm-hmm. time and the rising tide lifts all boats and, and we'll all keep getting richer. Well, that's not happening, and nobody believes that bullshit anymore. Well, so, you know, the old saying, we're all in the same storm. And the, but yeah, yeah, no, but we're not all in the we're same not. boat. Right. We're, we're, yeah. sorry, no, we're, yeah. we're not all in the same boat, but we're all in the same storm. Yeah. So I think right. that's how it goes. Yeah. Some of us are in yachts, some of us are yeah. bailing out dinghies with holes in them, you know. Yep, mm. yep, exactly. So we've got the potential for systemic yep. collapse. And, and this is what happened in Kurdistan. Right. The people were organised and ready and mm. when the vacuum of power came, yep. they were able to seize that opportunity and mm. implement their own system. Do you think we're ready? I don't think we're quite ready, but I think we can be, um, absolutely. And, yeah, that's um, what I'm trying to do with this book more than anything else is talk to folks across the activist community, um, across civil society, um, across the edges of politics the Greens, but also mm-hmm. independence, community independence movements and folks like that, and get people to start thinking about that idea of systemic transformative change. Mm-hmm. I think one of the big problems that we have is that our civil society doesn't recognise even the need for that, actually, as much as, in fact, most people do. Mm-hmm. Like, there's huge, huge parts of the climate movement <coughs> are also embedded within this idea that we can't challenge capitalism because capitalism is is all powerful and most of us there's this belief that everybody believes that capitalism is is reality it's never going to change so we can't challenge capitalism if the climate movement can't challenge capitalism it will never win and you know the same the same like i was saying with the slight naivety of some of the the the, the centrist kind of teal kind of movement there's a lot of them who really you know helen haynes i think is one of the most extraordinary political leaders in the country because she's actually deeply challenging the way our political system works and and inverting it taking saying you know she as the representative of the community is the least important she's just the one who happens to have the voice in the parliament it's up to the community to determine what she does. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of people who do have those views. What we need to do is start having that conversation across our politics and across our civil society movements, across our activist movements, and start thinking about, okay, it, it, the, the system is the problem. The system is collapsing. What now? Because we know full well that the bad actors are doing that thinking and they're using that to, to consolidate their power more and more and more and more. We need to be doing that from the opposite direction. We need to be working on building these new systems from the grassroots up, building these, you know, citizens' assemblies and and sharing economies and community democratic participation and you know community cohesion all of these things we can be building from the grassroots up which we are millions of us are doing that um what i believe we need to do is not 
importantly, not kind of bring them all together, but coordinate them. And all of us understand that the piece of the puzzle that we're actually creating is is one small piece of this grand project of building a new system that is based on mutual aid, that's based on cooperation and interdependence and mutual respect. Um, and if we can do that, that is truly transformative. Um, so... In, in part three of the book, I talk about the, the, the forms of transformation that happen mm-hmm. and the ecological transformation works on exactly these principles. Um, evolution works in a process of what's known as punctuated equilibrium. So there's this view, this very kind of mechanistic enlightenment view that evolution's kind of linear and, and, and slowly, you know, slowly, step by slowly. step we make our way from microbe to human and that's this, this you know, clear laid out path that was always going to happen that way and all of that. Um, there's millions of years where very little change happens Slowly but surely, in you know, in some parts, something's changing, and then there's tipping points. Yeah, um, well, you're probably familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's yeah, book. Yeah, exactly. He talks about that. Yeah, um, he still talks about it in quite a mechanistic way. Yeah. I have to say, not a very inter- interconnected <laughs> and, and ecological way, but um, but yes, he talks about tipping points. Um, the the eco ecological science um, framework, which I love for this, is is known as panarchy. Um, which which is all about how systems, every single system from cells through to the whole planetary ecosystem go through this process of growth, conservation, collapse, and regrowth. Um, and every human system does that too. Every corporation, every polity, every, you know, every family – Every human body, our human body does the same thing. And the human body is a great, a great example for it. We go through growth. We then conserve. We stay at basically our same state for most of our lives. Then we collapse and, and then the parts of our body reform and regrow into something new. And what's crucial to that is that every cell in our body is doing the same thing at the same time. And our capacity to conserve our body is dependent on our cells capacity to do the same thing and every body is part of a much larger system which is doing the same thing so if one of our cells becomes a cancer cell and starts to grow that could dramatically foreshorten our conservation stage and take us to collapse very early but if we're living as part of a system which has developed the complexity to be able to treat that cancer then that can treat the cancer and it can continue our conservation stage longer but at some point we'll reach collapse and we all know that what we need to understand is that the regrowth that comes after collapse is entirely dependent on what is growing at that point of collapse what comes next is dependent on what's growing underneath and at the moment, as we're reaching this point of collapse, my fear and the fear of a hell of a lot of others is that what's growing most strongly is an even nastier othering, an Make even America nastier... Again. Yeah. Um, yeah, the convoy of no confidence kind of approach even here in Australia, although that's not translating to, to political power particularly at this point, which is which is fascinating and, and relieving, I have to say. But it is in America. It is in Europe. Um, it is in parts of Asia. 
Um, and it certainly exists here. It absolutely exists here. I mean, we need to very clear. You know, we need to have a very clear-eyed view that, you know, the the Christchurch shooter um, was an Australian, and you know, there's there's a very strong view of of you know of that nasty, mm-hmm. di- the nastiest of all. Um, political views that exists here in Australia. But then you have to ask, like, you know, if this these views are attracting groups of people, why are they attracting mm. groups of people? Like, usually people start to get attracted to things that are more radical when they're really unhappy with the status yeah, quo, absolutely. right? Yep. So that's this was if we yep. go sort of a few layers underneath yep. the outcome, which is the you know the violent outburst yep. or the you know the thing mm. that causes the most grief for everybody. How can we like steer it away yep. from that before it gets to that point, right? Yep. Um, sing a better song. <laughs> that's that's says my the musician. To that. says, says the musician. It's yeah, absolutely. It has always been the case that um, that in in our societies, the growth of of hate, the growth of authoritarianism, comes when people are unhappy with the status quo. Um, the brilliant Hannah Arendt, um, in her book *The Origins of uh, the Origins of Totalitarianism*, talks about that um, in great detail. And there's been a huge amount of study since she was writing that in the fifties um, that that confirms and demonstrates how that kind of thing happens. That when our society is atomized, when people are feeling disconnected from each other, when they're feeling pushed away from each other. Um, that is the most dangerous point because that's when that's when um, people can come in and sing this siren song which which misdirects that unhappiness very, very deliberately. This is the thing. All of these, you know, Donald Trump, Pauline Hansen, they all actually correctly identify some of the ills in society. They're talking about how people are unhappy and why they're unhappy, and they're not always wrong about that. What they're very deliberately wrong about is what the solutions are. So instead of, you know, Donald Trump is the, is the most obvious example because he points to, you know, the rust belt in, in the USA and the way workers have been screwed over by capital and all of that. You know, it's a part of part of his critique is quite a Marxist <laughs> critique, but he's the bloody billionaire. He's the cause of it, and his entire politics is based on correctly identifying the problems and misdirecting people's attention away from him, away to somebody else, to to the scary other. Um, well, yeah, let's really, build a wall, right? Yeah, That's exactly. It, yeah. yeah, blame blame the Mexicans <laughs> instead of the billionaires. But isn't that across the world? That's how yeah, it is, of course, right? Yeah. You know, look. absolutely. And 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 they they can only be successful if we don't do a better job of bringing people together. That's the thing. Absolutely, they they thrive on disconnection. So we need to connect, and that's what all of our movements are actually seeking to do. That's what we're all talking about: is we need to bring people together. We need to build social cohesion. We need to build systems that en- enable and support cooperation and mutual support and 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 respect. And if we do that, then they don't have a chance. They don't have a chance in hell of, of succeeding. If we can actually bring people together, why would they go for people who are driving them apart? So uh, I, I guess this is where it comes into, you know, you tried to make a change by getting elected mm. and unfortunately that didn't happen. So 
when you're observing um, post-election, we're only a couple of months past the election, mm. but when you're observing what's happened, you know, during the federal election, who got elected, what are you seeing? Are you seeing any chance of getting to where you're talking about? Is that is that likely or are we just <laughs> putting you on the spot here? Sorry. Yeah, look, I, I, I see a certain amount of hope in the new parliament, um, a certain amount um, with a with a a fair amount of scepticism. I don't think that our political system as it currently exists is capable of solving the problems, as I said at the beginning of our chat. Um, What it can do is start to put the pieces in place to support that transformation to happen. Um, That, I think, is the critical critical thing, is that that our, our systems of power, we can use those systems of power, we can use the platform of the parliament to create the space for this transformation to happen by building some of those and supporting communities Mm. to build their own solutions from the grassroots up and to demonstrate the failure of the top-down power. And in some senses, I think one one of the things that this parliament is likely to do, actually, Mm. even more, this parliament was elected on the back of immense scepticism about the two-party system, which has been coming for years. Like along the, along the lines of that collapse in support for our democratic systems has been the collapse in support for the major parties. The combined major party vote in 2007 was, was close to 90%. It's been going down steadily since then. This election, it was below uh, – it was barely two-thirds. <laughs> Well, they only just formed a majority government, um, I think, by yeah. two seats or something, or yeah. one seat. Yeah. Absolutely. And formed majority government on the basis of the lowest primary <laughs> vote for a government in Australian <laughs> history. Um, it, it doesn't get lower than that. <laughs> so, you know, barely 30%. Um, so, you know, we saw this election, which was an election which had mass scepticism about the, the, the major party system of politics, <laughs> deliver a parliament which actually has a majority in the House but not in the Senate Mm. but has this enormous, very vocal, very highly regarded crossbench in the House Mm. as well. I think what we're going to see from this parliament is Labor in government kind of tearing itself apart over whether it should cooperate or whether it should attack. And you saw that with the whole climate business over the last few weeks Mm. where their their instinct – was to tell the Greens to get stuffed, to tell them to put up or shut up and just, you know, dare them to vote against it. And they got dragged to the negotiating table, absolutely kicking and screaming, ended up negotiating and getting an outcome which everyone's vaguely satisfied with. It's nowhere near enough, but what's happened, I think what I think what Adam Bant did very, very deftly was flip the pressure, actually. The pressure was immense on the Greens to simply agree to this, what he's done now, he said, okay, well, we got a couple of small little changes to this that satisfy us enough to pass it. Now the pressure is on you, Labor, to actually do what it takes and the next things which really matter, fundamentally fossil fuels. If you're going to keep expanding fossil fuels, then none of this matters. None of this matters. Um, and I think, you know, watching how this process has been reported this week, I think he's done that very, very successfully. The pressure now is on Labor. What are you going to do next? How are you going to make this work? And then um, you've got the opposition just waiting to pounce on a gotcha opposi- moment. Yeah. Yeah. And the opposition are just throwing shit at the walls and yeah. seeing what sticks. Yeah. Um, and 
and too much of the media is is going to be happily sort of reporting on that all the time. There's going to be this immense tension, I think, in this parliament between that adversarial system, which is so deeply embedded and so deeply embedded in Labor's culture. Labor's political culture is fundamentally adversarial. And this is my, you know, this is my biggest dispute with old socialist left politics, which is deeply, deeply adversarial in its style. Um, and if you're, if you're trying to get to, as, as they profess to be getting to, a, a, a Marxist vision of the withering away of the state and, and a non-adversarial system, you don't get there through an adversarial process. You simply don't. You can't. It doesn't work that way. No system of change ever works that way. Um, but Labor is deeply embedded in this adversarialist approach to politics. So how are they going to manage this parliament and this political context? I think it'll be a tremendous tension for them. I think there will be some progress. There already has been some progress. I think there will be more progress. But I think what it'll do more than anything else is demonstrate the failure even more of the two-party system. And the people who won seats in the lower house at this last election were almost every single one of them people who ran incredibly powerful grassroots campaigns where the people on the ground desperately wanted change, were working really hard for change and coming together to deliver it. Um, the more we demonstrate failure through this parliament of that way of doing things, um, of the old way of doing things rather, and the success of the grassroots model and you got, you know, Greens like Max Chandler Mather who, who ran this extraordinary eco-anarchist campaign in Brisbane, which was f fundamentally about mutual aid. They door-knocked the hell out of those suburbs for years, and then when the floods hit, they pivoted their entire campaign into mutual aid for weeks. And they just won the love and admiration of the community to an extraordinary extent. Um, it's that model of politics which is working, and people will see that and people will replicate it. So, yeah, I the hope that I have in this parliament is not that it's going to solve all of our problems. I think it's going to solve a, a, a handful of problems. It's going to demonstrate the failure of that system and it's going to create the space for other people to learn from what has worked previously. Do you see a point where the Teal movement could overtake all of the political parties and we end up with a parliament of actual representatives. <laughs> I think probably not the teal movement per se, but the community independent movement, yes. Yes, yes. Um, and there's, it's really well, important the to differentiate. The so the Voices for Indi movement that of Cathy McGowan and Helen Haynes and Dennis Ginevan and folks like that never identified as teal in any way. The teal idea is conservatives who believe in protecting the environment and... Um, the interesting thing is that Voices for Indi never took that approach, even though they were trying to beat a liberal in Sophie Mirabella, a conservative, and run in what had been considered a pretty conservative electorate. You know, they used the colour orange for action. They did kitchen table conversations. They built a community movement. In fact, they built the community movement not even intending to run for politics. They built the community movement intending to try to influence Sophie Mirabella. And they took this platform to Sophie Mirabella and she told them to get stuffed. And so they said, right, we'll run against you then. And they won. Um, 
that's not a teal model of politics. That's a dramatically different re-envisioning of what politics can be. Yes. And I think some of the community independents around the country in this election followed that mode very well. Some of them did less so. And it's going to be fascinating to see how that kind of evolves and diverges over the next little while because there's definitely a few of them. It strikes me from listening to their um, presentation in Parliament in, in, in these first couple of weeks, you know, people like Allegra Spender, <laughs> she is a teal. She is fund- She fundamentally believes in the system of power as it currently exists. She's a capitalist. She believes in this system of power, but she thinks that this system of power can fix the climate crisis if we do it well. I think she's fundamentally wrong about that. I think she's deeply naive about how this works. Um, you've got someone like Dr Sophie Scomps on the northern beaches of Sydney who I think is at the opposite end of that spectrum, much more close to Helen Haynes, who believes that actually the system is really problematic. She was seen as part of the Teal movement because she's this very nicely presenting suburban GP (laughs) who looks like a liberal but believes in climate change um, but is much more close to that community independent model. Um, I've heard people in the electorate of Wentworth, Allegra Spender's electorate, say that she's already turning people off her her kind of community movement because she's operating fundamentally top-down, um, whereas the community-based movement is, is about bottom-up. So I think it's really important to differentiate between the media picture of Teal and the reality in some of these places of community-driven independence. If the community independence model, which is very close to what the Greens have been doing for years can succeed then yes i think we can we can potentially start to transform our westminster parliamentary system into something that looks a little bit more like what they're doing in rojava <laughs> you know not the same but a little bit more like that yeah i mean <laughs> our local governments don't actually have any standing they're sort of no. there at the grace of the states yeah, aren't they exactly so, so yeah i don't think different. you can i don't think you can flip our parliament into that i think it needs to be recreated but what i as i say what i think can happen is if you can if if you can demonstrate the success of the voices model and the eco-anarchist kind of approach that Max and other Greens have been using, and we were trying to do here, we couldn't quite get that mobilisation working as well here, um, you know, and, and I own that as much as anybody else. We were, we were trying to do that model here. We couldn't quite get it off the ground yet. And maybe there's a factor that we're in, the Greens are in government here, and so it's kind of... Harder, in a sense, to do this. So, yeah, we already know that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And there's a little complacency maybe in there too, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Um, Yeah, we were trying to do that, but others around the country are watching with very great interest and trying to replicate that. And Mm -hmm. I think if if this parliament can demonstrate the success of that kind of model, um, that starts to create the framework Mm -hmm. like the, you know, the, the structure for the, for the plants to start growing up kind of thing um, for people to, to do a similar thing. I don't think it'll fix the system, but it'll create the space for something new to grow as we replace this system. And I guess it gives a bit of the lie to the, uh, the notion that we don't have time to do these things mm. because we're busy at work. 
All the time, working, working, so we can pay our bills. Well, what's the role yeah. of work in this? Oh, yeah. uh, this whole system that we've been talking absolutely about. Absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial. Yeah, we've spoken about my my passion for the idea of a universal basic income before as a way of kind of freeing ourselves from that. But yeah, the political and economic systems fundamentally depend on keeping us so damn busy that we can't even think about this most of the time and keeping us in drudgery. Um, yeah, that the, the system of wage labour is absolutely crucial to how the whole thing works. Um, yeah, one of my favourite quotes that I found that I use in the book is, is from, from an agricultural economist called Esther Bozerup um, who, who wrote way back in the mid-20th century about how um, you don't need to actually directly coerce people if you can prevent them from being independent cultivators, as she puts it. If people can't actually live in their own communities and are dependent on something much bigger than them, then they have no alternative. <laughs> and that's what the labour economy is based on. That's what this whole system of work is based on, is is saying that the only way you can feed yourself and your family is if you go and work for somebody else and they pay you a little bit. Well, what if we say, bugger that? What if we start growing our own food in our own communities? What if we start actually organising collection of our own solar energy and sharing that in our own communities? What if we collect our own water and start to share that ourselves and take back control, take back the capacity to be independent or rather, as I would put it, interdependent cultivators, build our own system that helps us look after each other, mutual aid-based system with community food, community energy, community water, community um, transportation, all of these kinds of things. If we do that, we don't need that system anymore. Absolutely. What was the old saying from, what's his name, old mate? Bloody, you can't change the system. By, um, oh, yeah, 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 old mate. Um, yeah, no, um, lost it. Futurist, no. American futurist. Live um, radio. Yeah. Wonderful stuff. Yep. I was just yeah. looking um, yesterday. You can't change the system by doing the other thing. You've got to you got to build, build better. You've got to build a better one. Yeah, and make a better yeah. alternative. Yeah. 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 So I was just looking at something yesterday. You Buckminster know how Fuller. Buckminster Fuller. Yeah, Buckminster Fuller. How badly Detroit was hit. Um, right. First of all, by the removal of the automotive industry from mm. there, that created an economic crash. And then, you know, over the course of time, the city's been in great decline. Mm. Uh, but they've had some of their most amazing community movements for food production yeah. spring back. Because Detroit was a food desert. You know, you couldn't yeah. get fresh fruit and vegetables within the inner city at all. Um, mm. You know, there were kids who'd never seen a banana yeah. in their lifetime. You know, eight-year-old kids didn't know mm. what a real banana looked like. So they've got now this, um, it's called an agri-hood in, De in Detroit, and it, it's this huge urban run, run by the people, and it feeds 2,000 households for free. It's 1,280 acres of garden and orchard. Amazing. And this is from this dead city. This yep. has come out. So when you, when you talk about collapse, right, yep. this is what the rebirth yep. of the collapse yep. can look like if you've got the right mindset behind yep. it. And that's access to land and access yeah. to yep. nature, which we and don't And this would probably have. be land yep. that's not in use anymore because of the collapse or right. this land becomes abandoned. Yep. There's, um, you know, and, and too often that's, that's policed quite literally by the state mm -hmm. and people, you know, you have these guerrilla gardens being set up and <laughs> even in Brisbane recently it had happened that a guerrilla community garden was set up and, and, and the government came in and bulldozed it. Um, and, you know, it's so closely related to those coercive policing systems. I don't know about that particular example in Detroit, but I've certainly read mm -hmm. about some in in the Rust Belt and in the South where um, 
there's a deliberate pairing of this community food and care mm-hmm. kind of process with a defund the police movement mm-hmm. to say that the the police are all about actually stopping us from mm-hmm. being mm-hmm. um you know independent cultivators actually and if you just give us the space mm-hmm. and the support to look after ourselves mm-hmm. you don't need to come in here with your police mm-hmm. anymore we don't want you actually um and so yeah, removing that power mm. of the of the coercive state mm. at the same time um, is really amazing. Well, I guess you've got a lot of problems because you've seen that in Holland what the farmers have been doing. They've been mm. riding and, you know, pouring manure over the steps of parliament yeah. and things like that. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, I'd say particularly uh, we've seen more in North America, tax on small holdings farmers, mm. um, arguing that it's for climate uh, protection, mm. but it's not the same rule applied to the giant agribusinesses, yep, right? So they're just buying up all the land from all the small holdings farmers that can't survive anymore or they're mm-hmm. being offered buyouts by the government mm-hmm. and then you've got major, major corporations coming in and taking over that and doing monoculture and that yep. sort of thing. So, yep. you know, I, I see this is, this is a real problem and how do we um, protect our small mm. holdings farmers for diversities, mm. you know, seed saving, all of that. Yeah. But at the same time, we're also trying to um, present a model of climate protection so a lot mm. of people who don't agree with what the Dutch farmers are doing are saying, well, they should be using better practices and mm. they don't want to change their practices. And mm. they're saying, well, no, we just want to be able to produce food for the people yeah. and we're being prevented from doing that. So. Yeah, well, mm. helping, you know, it's, mm. it's the same as, it's the, same as the, the transition mm. out of fossil fuels that we've talked about so mm. many times is, you know, the just transitions process. Mm. Yes, we've got to stop burning mm. coal, but that doesn't mean that everybody who's been working in the coal mines and the coal power mm. plants needs to be thrown on the scrap heap and treated very poorly by, by government and business. Um, you know, the problem isn't the farmers. The problem is the technology that, that they've been using. If we can do a similar kind of transition process where we can support and educate and enable and fund other farmers to do the kind of stuff that Charles Massey and so many others have been doing with their regenerative farming, um, that's the way to do it. I think the, the biggest problem is that government still has this tendency to come in top down and say this is what you will do and if you don't do it this way we'll tax you or regulate you or whatever it is rather than say okay so what's out there what are the solutions that we've got how can we enable other people to embrace these solutions um, to make things work better yeah and that's that's such a huge solution for the climate thing Mm -hmm. imagine so you get these Crazy billionaires who talk about the geoengineering stuff. We need yeah. to put silver iodide right <laughs> here, and we're going to put great big Sulfur umbrellas in the atmosphere. over the earth. Yeah. But the the best bloody geoengineering thing we could possibly do would be simply to change the way we grow our food. Yep. Regenerative farming. Yeah, and yep. put that carbon yep. back in. Well, we get the back soil. to the Walter Genner yeah. thing. It's about yep, two exactly. years of regenerative yep. farming to make a ninety percent difference. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. That's yeah. I mean, it's kind of re- it, it's it's reversing the geoengineering that we've been doing. I guess I would argue is the point. What we've what we've been doing with industrial farming for the last half century, in particular, um, is a massive geoengineering project, which has been incredibly destructive. Um, what we need to do is reverse that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I wanted to roll back a bit because we've been talking about your book, but we haven't actually told our listeners what your book's called. <laughs> oh, we've been saying the book, oh the book, the book, oh the book no. and We haven't actually discussed the book. So the book, Living Democracy, is is the title of Tim's book. What is Living Democracy? Mm. 
living democracy and ecological manifesto for the end of the world as we know it, um, I've called it. Um, and we've been talking about that subtitle, I think, quite a lot, the end of the world as we know it, <laughs> that it's not the end of the world. It doesn't have to be the end of the world, but it does have to be the end of the world as we know it. The idea of living democracy came from a bunch of conversations. Again, you know, this is like, yeah, it's got my name on the title, but for goodness sake, there's so many people who, who, who <laughs> whose ideas, ideas have become part of it. And I was talking, you know, I, I had this, I was calling it ecological democracy and all of these people were saying, don't call it ecological democracy. Nobody will buy a book called ecological. What does that even mean? Who cares about ecological democracy? And discussing it with various people and we, we workshopped this idea of, living democracy and the idea that that encapsulates is that it can be read in multiple different ways so it's living democracy in that it understands and is come and comes from the living world um, it is a model of democracy that is based on ecology that is based on an understanding of the living world and how the living world operates um, it's also understanding democracy as a living thing in its own right. Um, and that, I think, is one of the most crucial things for us, that the state exists as this entity which is separate from us and we have to obey the state in the same way that we have to kind of obey the precepts of the economy. The, our democracy is something which is which is separate from us. It's not. Our democracy is always has been and must be something which we understand as as an extension of our living selves. It's how it's how the superhuman it's how the superorganism of human society actually self-determines its own future. Um, so it's democracy that comes from the living world, it's democracy as a living entity, and the third thing is it's democracy as a living practice. And that's what I really want to dig into through this whole process is understanding that democracy is not just the state democracy is not just what happens in parliament house far from it democracy is not the process of turning up to vote once every few years for the least worst option then being told to bugger off for the next few years and come back and vote for the least worst option again democracy is everything we're doing democracy is by nothing groups democracy is mutual aid organizations democracy is is you know um SES volunteers, it's soup kitchens, it's all of these things. This is everything is a practice of democracy. Our families are a practice of democracy, or should be. Um, you know, it's deeply, deeply understanding that democracy is is a living practice. How we do things ourselves, extending that out across the superorganism of humanity, understanding that superorganism to be utterly, utterly dependent on the health of the natural world that it that it springs from. So that's what I'm trying to encapsulate with this idea of living democracy. So it's the symbiosis of all Absolutely. of it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'd like to make the distinction between periodic democracy and daily democracy. <laughs> right. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Daily yeah. democracy is something you do every day. Absolutely. Say if you were working in a cooperative or some other democratic mm. workplace, mm. then you would mm. daily be making decisions. But, uh, mm. yeah, if you go to work, you know... Normal company, you yeah. hang your democracy hat on the coat hook yep. and in you go. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And we do the same kind of thing with our periodic democracy uh, as well. Um, mm. Because we're, we're, you know, 
advocacy is being suppressed and protest is being outlawed and you know we're not allowed to actually try to influence what our decision makers are doing in between elections and then the elections are so uninspiring that we can't really influence very much then either. Yeah, that's right. I mean, New South Wales has got huge fines for protesting now. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're really up the ante, so mm -hmm. I guess... The the Victorian, they're copying off Britain. Britain's yeah. just imposed mm -hmm. that. Um, the Victorian yeah. Parliament just last night passed um, a new horrendous um, act criminalising forest protest mm -hmm. again, you know. The the real criminals are the, are the ones who are going in and destroying these spectacular ecosystems, which are not only spectacular in their own right, but absolutely crucial to our survival. They're the criminals. And they're the government. And they're the government. And they're the corporations that the government supports. And the government is criminalising the people who are desperately in there trying to protect them. But we've seen it's this just, everywhere, right? Like it's yeah. no longer about justice no. and right and wrong. It's corporate mm. interests and who are your masters, yep. you know, who are you beholden to, yep. who helps it's, get you elected, who yep. paid for your campaign. It's power. Yeah, all of that. Mm. So, I mean, the, the lovely thing about your book, um, and I think Bradley, is it James Bradley called it um, a manual for making a new and better world? <laughs> so we can get the manual. So it's in four parts. <laughs> um, it's broken into four parts, but where we're where we are coming from, where we're going, how do we get there, and the beginning, and I'm guessing in brackets the new beginning? <laughs> yeah, the conclusion's called the beginning, yeah. Um, just yeah, <laughs> just in terms of, okay, so this is where it starts. Yeah, it's it's basically, I see it as in three parts. The, mm -hmm. the beginning is, is, a, is a brief conclusion. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, where are we coming from, where are we going, and how do we get there? Um, and, yeah, the where are we coming from is this kind of this philosophical and historical kind of question of what is – what is an ecological way of thinking? What's an ecological way of governing? What What is anti-ecological -eco -e thinking? Where did it come from? How did it evolve? And kind of trying to paint this picture that's actually, it's the systemic change that we need because this it's, it's the system which is holding us back. The where are we going is where I detail all sorts of things like Rojava and we haven't talked today, but we have previously about Barcelona and Comu mm -hmm. and participatory city in London and um, indigenous self-governance systems and by nothing groups and, and cooperatives and all of these, you know, numerous ideas that are out there. And then part three is an exploration of how does transformative change happen? How do we take all of these amazing ideas that exist, that have always existed, that are out there, that people are doing, but are currently sitting at the edges? How do we take these alternatives and create transformative change? So it's this this idea of, uh, you know, that panarchic idea of through collapse comes regeneration and the regeneration is based on what's growing. So how do we seed these alternatives how do we help them to grow and and replicate rather than grow to dominate, grow by replicating, self-replicating in diverse ways and simultaneously remove our consent from the current ways of being so that the new system can grow and build trust and, and, and actually transform the way we do things. Now, my takeaway from a lot of your examples in the book is that humans – know how to do this, mm. right? They know mm. they, they're good at finding solutions. They respond yep. well to problems. Yep. Um, you know, there's an intrinsic nature within human beings to care and to share and to be fair to each other. But yep. we seem to keep getting pulled away from yep. that and keep we following this, like I said, the programming of being told what to do mm. and what to do isn't working. How do we, how do we break that hypnosis? Mm. Yep, I think we're breaking it. I think mm. it's happening. Mm. We break it by doing it mm. is the primary thing. Mm. We break it by doing um, and, and recognising anew that this actually is... 
this is the reality of human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, we break it by actively targeting those stories that we're told of human nature that, you know, and there's a few of them that I detail in the book. Um, the, you know, one of the, the big ones being this idea of the tragedy of the commons that that came out of the, the work of the, the eugenicist, white supremacist, um, zoologist Garrett Hart in, in, in the 1960s that that commons can't work because because humans are fundamentally selfish and, and will destroy them, whereas in fact commons are fundamentally about the process of cooperation and coming together to, to self-govern. Exactly. A capitalist um, society group of humans might destroy it. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. and do, yeah. always do, but that's not how commons mm-hmm. work. So tearing apart that idea of the tragedy of the commons and talking about it as in fact mm-hmm. the tragedy is the tragedy of capitalism, of the enclosure of the commons, taking some of those really archetypal ideas that, that came through psychology in the 1950s, 60s and 70s, like the, the famous um, Stanford prison experiment and, the, and Stanley Milgram's electric shock experiment, both of which you know, purported to demonstrate the fundamental nastiness and, and evil of humanity that we will do horrible things to each other if given the opportunity – um, what's come out in, in recent times is that both of them were, were massive academic frauds, massive frauds. They, they, they hid the evidence that actually most people involved in those experiments were desperately trying to stop them, actually. Um, and, the, and, and the experimenters had to kind of force them into doing the things that they wanted them to do. So there's so much evidence um, the other the other book that I think is is crucial to this in kind of tearing that apart is Rutger Bregman's amazing book Humankind, which starts to really rip into the this mythology, this capitalist imperialist mythology of of, of human nature, um, that we are fundamentally selfish, greedy, um, you know, Homo economicus. It's a lie. It's a lie. the The truth is that we are complex. The truth is that. We all have some of these impulses to dominate. We also all have incredible impulses to cooperate. And the problem is that we built a system that rewards our worst instincts instead of one which rewards our best. Um, and there have been numerous systems that have been built over the over humanity um, which reward our best instincts. Numerous examples of them all around the world, wonderful diverse examples of governing and economic systems of all kinds that are fundamentally based on rewarding our best instincts. Um, If we can do that and if we can start to do that and live that into being, then people will, will lose faith even faster than they're currently losing faith in the systems which are about our worst instincts. Was that why the old guards hanging on so hard? They oh, can see absolutely. this change coming yeah. like a freight train yeah. and they're just trying harder and harder, like being more authoritarian and mm. you know, more control yeah. because they can see that the people can see through the yep. facade now. And, I, and that gives me immense hope. Mm. Um, again, going back to Hannah Arendt, mm. um, uh, she she wrote one of the most extraordinary essays I've ever read mm. and I only finally came across it when writing this book mm. called On Violence. Um, where she talks, she she takes as her starting point um, Mao Zedong's idea that power comes from the barrel of gun, and she says that's absolutely wrong. Domination comes from the barrel of a gun. Power un- can only come from people coming together to co-determine their own future. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the thing that she gets to in, in that essay, which many others have talked about as well, is that when systems of power are starting to collapse, those who hold that power start to use their power more and more obviously and more and more coercively. And that's what we're seeing with this criminalization of protest. That's what we're seeing with militarization of our police. That's what we're seeing with all of this that's happening all over the world, those in power desperately clinging on. And as they do that, they're destroying their own power, actually. that They are literally... When a government starts to do something like criminalise protest, when a government gives their police military equipment and sends them into marginalised neighbourhoods, they are destroying their own real power and creating the tendencies to 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 um, to revolt. They're creating the desire to to do something different. And they're seeding that, they're fermenting it, they're creating the space for people to come together and say, this is wrong, we want to do something different. So that really we get back to what Scotty and I talk about often is that in sort of the echelons of power, most of the people that hold the most power probably sit on the spectrum of psychopathy or sociopathy, <laughs> right? Yeah. And that's that's our biggest barrier yeah. is um, you've either got to build a system around them and circumvent them yeah. completely <laughs> or you need to um, be able to encourage people with a conscience to, yeah. um, to step up into those positions. And most people don't want to do the toxic battle that it would take right. to get there, most decent people. And that maybe, coming back to Scotty, your, your point earlier about the transformation of this particular parliament, mm-hmm. maybe that is, I think, the... The thing about the community independence movement that is most inspiring is that there's a bunch of people who are mostly good people who've said, actually, no, we can do this differently. We can do this better. And I think most of them will find when they get into that building that that building is not capable of doing it better. But what they're doing in, in, in that process is saying it doesn't have to be that way. That way sucks. That's the barrier to a better life. We can do it better. Let's do it better. Let's just do it ourselves. That's it. Eventually, we're going to have to organise ourselves as a community. Yep. We're going to have to tax ourselves. We're going to have to pay a little bit more, but we're going to have to organise ourselves to meet all of yeah. our needs in every sector of our needs. And then we'll also control the profits that we make. <laughs> right. And control our work. <laughs> yep. And really, yeah, that's the only way I can see work. out of this bloody mess. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if anyone likes that idea, look up Co Cambra yes. or Walk. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, um, yeah, help us build the new. Yes, we've talked about cooperatives a lot on the show. Yeah. We're just getting to the end of our time here, Tim. And I wanted to let our listeners know where they can get a copy of your book if they would like to uh, have a read. Yeah, fabulous. All over the place now. It's in the bookshops. Um, um, a friend sent me uh, a photo from Dimmick's in the Canberra Centre. It's there t- t- today. It's also in Harry Hartog at ANU. Um, you can also go to livingdemocracy.org.au and you can buy a copy there. So is it available um, as an ebook? As it's well? available as an ebook from the various ebook places. It's not available as an ebook there on, on Living Democracy. That's you can you can order a physical copy. But if you go to wherever you normally buy your ebook, it is now there for download um, to Kindle and whatever. The other thing I want to mention is that 31st of August. This only just got confirmed last night, so I don't think I even told you guys yet. We're doing a launch at Cambry at ANU um, on the 31st of August with um, Shane Rattenbury and Anna Greta Hunter. I think you've probably – have you had Anna Greta on this program no, too? No, had um, Shane on a couple of times. Yeah, but is um, that with the Writers' Festival or is that after? It's not actually. It's after the Writers' Festival. Unfortunately, we just missed the deadline for the Canberra Writers' Festival. Um, I think it's just a couple of weeks before yeah, you. Know, mid- Mid-August. It's I mid-August. Think, yeah. So, yeah, this is 31st of August at Cambry. Um, I'll pop it up on my Facebook, the the link to that um, 
later today. Um, but if you if you Google it, I'm sure you can find it. Right, and your social media, so people can find you on. Uh, it's still t- Facebook <laughs> slash Tim Hollow for Canberra. Yeah. Also on Twitter, I'm at Tim Hollow. Um, and yeah, yeah I and mean, your Twitter do, do, is highly entertaining. I do like, do like that one. <laughs> Thank you. Go and, go and capture some great I, anecdotes. I fill it with, with dad jokes as, <laughs> as well as as well as politics. But the the benefit of having an unusual name, if you Google me, Tim Hollow, I'm the one who comes up. And some of our keen regular listeners may remember that we had uh, Jamie Hollow on right. your uh, uh, eldest or, or second eldest? Jimmy, my, my Jimmy, younger. Jimmy, sorry, yeah. Jamie, yeah. sorry, Jimmy, yeah. yeah. I wasn't sure where Jimmy sits in the age spectrum there. Yeah, younger. Yeah. Younger, younger. Yeah. And um, Jimmy was having some great chats with us about XR and the school school strikes, yeah, climate yeah, protests. They're so. a very active school yeah, striker. Fantastic. Because mm. I didn't realise you were related and I and I asked Jimmy, I said, oh, were your parents supportive of you going into this movement? <laughs> there was a, a big chuckle from Scotty. Yeah. <laughs> it was like when I finally clicked, I went, oh, of course, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I did, yeah, to, to be clear, yeah, Jimmy found that part themselves. You know, they they woke up the morning after the the last election, the 2019 election, when Morrison won yeah. on the Sunday morning, and said, "I'm going to the school strike meeting this afternoon." Brilliant. Um, and yeah, very active activist. Yeah. It's fantastic. And many more to come. I think the idea of the book is going to inspire people, inspire people to take action. That's uh, the, the lethargy, I think, is what people mm. are getting sick of. Yep. The nothing changing and not doing anything about it. Yep. And the idea that when they try to change, it's being blocked. Yeah. Um, so, yep, let's just do it ourselves. Mm. Wonderful. So, Tim, thank you for coming back on the show. Uh, we've had you, I think, that's the third or fourth time we've had you on the show in the last couple of years. It's been a few. Thank you so much. It's yeah. always a pleasure to chat to you both. <laughs> Wonderful. And Tim's book, Living Democracy, take a look at that and uh, have a read. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and radio behind the lines from Community Radio to X 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative Commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. 
From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.